What do you think so far? I said, use your Mensa IQ to decipher this. Uh, maybe one day he'll reveal reveal the exact number. But he probably doesn't want to make anybody feel bad, so maybe he won't. Oh, oh yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, oh, man, there's a fish right now. It's, uh, that, that makes me out. That makes me think. It's just really weird. Well, it's about to get a lot weirder because Butch Hadwood is also from Taunton, Massachusetts. Uh, a crazy connection because so James Renner is the leading journalist on the Moramora case. Basically, he wrote a book about it and he's involved. He's been involved since early on. Yeah. He apparently was tracking the IP of a mysterious email that was written online claiming that Moore was alive and well and fled due to being involved in the Vatsy hit and run. And the IP was from Taunton. Uh, Moore's cousins are also from Taunton. And then there was also this other nurse who claimed to be a family member, but was it? we went over this in the previous podcast. She's also from Taunton. And now Butch Atwood is from Taunton, Massachusetts. And Taunton, Massachusetts has actually a very small population. So like everybody knows everybody's got population. But Taunton, Massachusetts, not New Hampshire. So she went missing. Wait, who got this email? Uh, How'd they get this IP? The email was, uh, this message was posted on, I think, the original family forum after Moore went missing. And claiming, someone claiming to be Moore's cousin wrote it. That said Moore's alive and She's alive and well. And she fled due to the vaccine getting wrong. And and then that IP, he got some computer expert to trace IP. And it was from Taunton, Massachusetts, which is where Butch Atwood is from. And, okay, so several private investigators who worked on the case thought Butch was hiding something. That he saw what or whom happened that night, but he was afraid to talk. He also has many inconsistencies in his story, who got out of which car, and he changed this up several times. He also lied about being a police officer in time. He was never a police officer. He was like a dog handler or someone in a non-police capacity. But his father and grandfather were both police officers. So, he just said that to make himself seem more legit. I don't know. Also very strange is that Cecil Smith, the first responding officer, he recruited Butch to help him drive around and search for Mora. So he is a private citizen who may have been involved in a crime, because for all he knew, Butch could have killed him. And he's like, go around, check there, check there, we'll all go drive around looking for him. Yeah, that is kind of weird. Butch never do that. And even weirder, on the oxygen show, Nobody asked him, but but he just ran, see so randomly was like, oh, by the way, I didn't know Butch. Like, nobody even asked him, like, that wasn't even being talked about. We asked him why. He just, whether he knew Butch or not. He was just like, oh, I didn't know Butch. As if somebody would make that connection. So, I, and here's the thing, he did know Butch. Clearly. That's fucked up. So, everybody's hiding everything. And by the way, so Sid and Johnny, on the Oxygen show, they wouldn't allow Cecil Smith and Jeffrey Williams to even be interviewed unless the uh, Attorney General, Shreslin, was present. Hmm. And he was just watching the interview as if they could... And obviously they would not allow this? Would he not allow this? The Attorney General. Unless he was there. So he was... You don't remember that? Is that a... Damn, that's crazy. You don't remember that? I don't remember I told you I've never seen the, the show except yeah, for one episode. Well, no, they, they, had, they had clips of it. Tomorrow. Whose idea was it for the show? Like, who produced it? Like, what was the intention oh, Wow. It? Was it loaded questions. Or they loaded just... questions. It's probably um, that, that girl that did the interview, right? Was it her idea? Maggie Freelung went to UMass. 
and so did one of the producers of The Oxygen Show. We'll be getting into a lot of that in, in other episodes. Basically, it was all the interest generated through the, through the other podcast. And just the fact that, you know, Fred Murray had quite a... Fred Murray sued the state of New Hampshire for information on his daughter because they wouldn't release information on it. And Moore Murray is the biggest, is the largest case file in New Hampshire state history. Oh, oh wow. And it was funny because all these years they were maintaining, oh, it's just a standard walkaway DUI while they have the largest case file. <laughs> no, the inconsistency is just and the hilarity. Okay, so the show, obviously, they want to kind of like point fingers at somebody at the end. Did they have an idea? On they basically, it seemed, it seemed like it was a propaganda hit piece to... Uh, to make the police not look complicit because John Smith, one of the biggest PIs in the case, John Smith is his real name. He was pushing the police conspiracy angle pretty hard. Because on the internet, like the main theory was that she walked into the woods and died. That was the main theory, that she was suicidal and all this. And a lot of people, like James Renner doesn't even want to consider any kind of police conspiracy. He's one of those. Okay. He just can't consider the possibility. He thought it was either, you know, a local dirtbag, serial killer, whatever, which is a small chance, or Moore had a tandem driver, someone else was there to pick her up. And that was like the red truck. Big ass red truck. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the, red, yes. the red truck. <laughs> what was that? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so why are we talking about the red truck? Oh. There was a red a witness spotted a red truck looking for someone. Right after the during the time. Yeah, so Renner's yeah, we had a whole episode on it. And we talked about it in another episode as well. <laughs> Renner and James Renner said that that was someone she was with and this whole thing was a staged getaway for her to go to Canada and start a new life. Right, right. Possibly because she was pregnant uh, with her boyfriend Billy's baby and she didn't want to have anything to do with Billy or her father Frank. Now now James Renner also recently just took his vlog down. Yes. And and what was the reason again? He he said he, he found to... the mind shot podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, his, originally, years ago, he said if Mora ever reached out to him or someone gave him evidence that she was alive and well and didn't want to be found, he would jump him out of there. But oh, the reason he stated, well, he also changed his theory. He now believes, I think he said, 70% chance that she's dead. And he believes Billy had something to do with it because... I don't know. Did we talk about? We talked about. Wait, that. Uh, we talked about that. So Billy, with his insane phone activity, yeah, then he yeah. talks to Mora. That there's a Sunday call. Then, then his girlfriend's missing. He goes completely silent for like five days. Doesn't even use his cell phone. So did he really talk to Mora? Did he meet her? Did he kill her in the week after she went missing? Because he was at Fort Sill that night. So anyway, James Renner kind of focuses on him or the tandem driver theory where Mora got away and she's living in Canada. Well, I'll say I just. From anything longer, so all I can say, at least for me personally, I can't believe the full suicide. There's, yeah, no, that seems it just yeah, it doesn't work. Just because I mean, they also did helicopter searches and there were no footprints in the snow. It's just it's really tough unless she was picked up by someone and she went somewhere. I mean, it's just it's. And so so James uh, took down the blog. Uh, either she saw her, he saw her alive, or he's 
uh, focusing on Billy on other stuff. And and because the blog is the blog is all about her being alive, then she Ooh, yes, James, Renner, James Renner is into a whole bunch of other stuff. He's not just about oh, her. Got it, got it. So it's like a change time of interest in time. Wait, I have a really stupid question. Wait, how do we? No, that that was actually more Murray that crashed my car. Just because well, yeah, that's, it was yeah, her yeah, car, that's yeah, the yeah. only connection. Yeah, and, and originally, Butch Atwood actually said it wasn't her. When he was first shown the picture, he said it didn't look like her, and then later he said it did. He also said she had her hair down, and she never wears her hair down. So we don't know that it was her. And I keep bringing that up almost in every in every podcast. People don't want to talk about that. But I'm like, can they at least... There is no evidence she left Amherst. There's the ATM video, which, by the way, they didn't, they didn't release until the Oxygen show. Was there hair? So it was unreleased for over a decade. That's ridiculous. And That's what case have ever. you ever seen where they don't release the last known footage of the person? That's extremely important. Yeah. And they didn't. It's like... So if the police actually know what happened and she's dead, then they would have needed to release it, right? And they, and they, they also cut the video, right? Like they also cut. Yeah, it's hard to know. It's, it's unknown. Uh, it's unknown. Yeah, it's just a picture, right? No, it's frames. There's a bunch of frames. Oh, there is. But it's yeah. It's you can see her walking up, coming from her car. No, I don't think you can see her car right now. So she parked off to the side. She just suddenly appears on the screen. Like so, if she went through a toll or something, or at a gas station, and there's video, there's supposedly security. There, she was sighted. At a Butson's, like a, a nearby supermarket. For butts. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, the, the weird names in the, the stores I remember that. Yeah, so she, uh, there's supposedly a bank across across from the store where you would be able to see her. And it is unknown. If, the police said they didn't get to it until like a year later and the footage didn't exist. But maybe they do have the footage. Who knows? I mean, also, the police never even gotten around to calling the numbers that she last called. So oh. she was looking... Excuse me, what? <laughs> the police didn't investigate the fact that she called all these places the night before looking for lodging. So they talked to one condo owner, uh, Salam- Linda Salamone, eight months after the fact. And she's like, I don't remember. I talk to like a million people every single day. If you had contacted me, you know, within a week or two, I might have remembered and it might have been helpful. And the police also never even talked to Maura Murray's sister, Julie, her older sister, who happens to do work for an independent CIA contractor. Did you talk about that? Uh, no, no, I don't believe we talked about that last week. Yeah, Maura has two sisters. Her older sister, Julie, also went to West Point. Maura went to West Point for one year. Oh, wait. No, I really and do you recall that the rumor is she was shoplifting at Fort Knox? <laughs> shoplifting at Fort Knox? The Fort Knox gift shop, yeah. Oh, okay. She's okay. still makeup or lipstick, whatever. So this is a rumor. I don't know if this has ever been corroborated officially. So instead of being expelled, she left, and then she went to UMass. Huh. So Julie went to Julie graduated from West Point. Her older sister. Her other sister, Kathleen, is a alcoholic and drug user who had some issues. And one of the POIs we'll get into is her uh, her ex boyfriend Tim Carpenter, who happened to own a red truck with Massachusetts plates. But let's uh, <laughs> let's finish with Butch Atwood. So, what do we think of Butch Atwood? A lot. So he, he was actually focused on heavily initially because, first of all, if he's the last known person to see her, if it was her, so let's assume it's her for the purpose of this. Mm-hmm. What do we think? He, could he have killed her? Supposedly, he owned a, he owned property in that area as well, and nobody knows. It's like he wasn't monitored when he went out searching for her. Interesting. Um, just to confirm uh, from the Western statement. Um, do they still see a? Uh, a person? Yeah. Here, look out. After the bus driver left? Yes. Okay. 
There was a flurry of activity at the trunk. Also, we didn't talk about there was a rag stuffed in the tailpipe. Okay. So Fred Murray said that it was him who told her that because if the car was smoking, you put a rag in the tailpipe okay. so the police don't pull you over. So that's the official story. But that was a big uh, sticking point for a long, long time. Well, if you if you cover up the uh, the exhaust, the car can't move. It depends because if it's a rag and it's letting air through, like yeah, if you jam it with like a potato or something, it's a lot worse. <laughs> but a rag, who knows? And who knows when she put it in there? Other people speculate that that could be a signal. Oh, I got away. Or this accident is staged. A lot of the PIs thought the whole accident scene was staged. Because of how uh, uh, crash it itself was. And just it. the aftermath with everything. It was just insane. So, did Butch Atwood do it? Or is he just too obese? <laughs> I still don't get why he owns a school bus. Is that a school district? Yeah, what's a, what's a, what was his... Is it a school bus driver? Or what was he... Um, school bus driver. Well, why was he coming home that late? I think he dropped off students coming back from a ski trip. So he was like, was he wasn't driving them to or from school. Right, it was a ski trip. Yes, he lied about being a police officer. He said he used to be a police officer. But if Cecil believed him, maybe that's why he invited him to come to. Uh, I mean, I guess with the whole brother That makes a lot Okay, so let's move on to Rick Forcier. I'm just out of curiosity's sake. The town has, like, tourism at all gone up since this case has happened? Tourism is is really big in New Hampshire and the White Mountains, right. which is part of the... John Smith actually talks about that, where he believes a lot of this cover-up, and they don't want to deal... They don't want anything to shed bad light on it, which is why they maintain for so long this is a DUI, walk-away, possible suicide, because they don't want to be like, oh, people get killed up here. Okay. So... Yes, tourism is a big factor up there. Loon Mountain is a ski resort that's not too far from there, okay. and that's big. And it's actually connected to the case, and we'll get into that in a little bit because there's person of interest involved in Loon Mountain as well. Okay. So, good thought. <laughs> uh, you were saying though, like if you're cur- you're curious if uh, it increased exactly if, uh, since these events. Because people probably coming up there to figure out what's going on. A lot of it's not even that publicized. A lot of people don't even know about her case even up there. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So moving on to Rick Forcier, who I mentioned briefly. So this is like a carpenter construction contractor type guy. And initially he said he was home watching TV, didn't know anything about it. Supposedly he didn't hear any of the sirens. He didn't oh one quick point that I forgot to make just so you guys get the big picture. That same night, there was a bunch of suicides being called into the police. Now, normally there's like, whatever, one or two a year. There was like a bunch that night. Well, any specific number? Just the area? There was a couple of suicides, yeah. Like, Cecil, I think, went to a suicide after or possibly was coming from one before as well. And Bruce McKay, who we talked about before, I think he was going to one. It's just, uh, yeah, very strange. A lot of strangeness that night. That's weird. And there's a whole bunch of missing activity from the police log, too. Because there's always, like, traffic, you know, whatever, stuff going on. There's, like, chunks missing from that night. As if... But what do you, mean by, stuff, what do you mean by missing activity? Like, people... It's like, just not on the police log. There's a couple hours missing. Mm. How do they know that... How do people know that it's missing? Because there's no activity at all. Like, if you look at any police log from any day, there's people... There's always police issues going on. There's traffic uh, stops, traffic violations. There's people calling the police for a million different reasons. So there's, like, hours of possible missing. There's just blocks, chunks gone. 
but that's what I mean. Like, like people can see. Oh, people call in at this hour, but there's no people. Yeah, so for example, if you watch the previous day or just any day, there's activity all the time. Like, there's never chunks of hours where absolutely nothing is done. Like, even just officers reporting on duty or whatever. Especially at this convenient time. Yeah, so it's, you know, nightfall. So there could have been a previous accident, and they deleted it. And then there was some weird cover-up and strangeness and suicides. But there's even more crazy police activity, which we'll get into in another podcast. But let's <laughs> let's try to get this done. Oh, so geez. Rick Forcier, he's the guy that made jokes about more. His ex-wife and other people reported it to the police, and the police questioned them. And again, the big thing is he changed his story. He was home watching TV, didn't even know anything happened, despite all the commotion for hours that night, and the sirens, and the ambulance. He didn't know anything was going on. And then he changed his story. Wait a second, he wasn't home, he was actually on a job. And then he was coming home and he saw a hooded figure running five miles east of the crash site. So, and the police took it seriously. Now, the police did have him as a suspect because as soon... Oh, and he denied searches of his property. He would not allow the police to search his property or his trailer. Now, well, eh, I see nothing wrong with that. Well, if, he's, would, if he was also... Also, if he's selling drugs or something, there's nothing to do with more. He just yeah. might not want police. Oh, yeah, he's involved exactly. in other yeah. illegal activities. But that's, but that's what I mean. Like, I would do the same, and I, I'm sure you would do the same. Even, like, they don't want to be bothered. You, you know, they have no... Is Rick Forcey a fan of the cops? I mean, he's, he's, I don't know. Not saying no to him just because he's like, no war. It's possible. Like, so, it's possible. So, there was also supposedly he was pouring a concrete foundation for a new house, but not on that property site. So, one of the rumors later was that Mora was buried in concrete. Hmm. And there's also a concrete slab at the A-frame house, which we'll get into in a minute. Uh, but uh, I remember, they I remember did that, that on the Sopranos. What? They did that on the Sopranos. Yeah, they so, buried someone. Yeah. A lot of people get buried into that. Yeah. yeah. That's it's a good way to bury someone. So, but here's the thing. The police had eyes on him. Years later, when he moved, as soon as the trailer was being towed off his property, he was immediately stopped and searched by the police. So they had eyes on him, and he was definitely a police suspect. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done that. And there was, apparently, there was nothing as a result of the search. Uh, another thing is he owned rural property in Pennsylvania, and supposedly that has never been searched. So if he's the killer and he dumped her somewhere really far, they'll be bothered. What kind of car does he have? What kind of car? Wait, who are you talking about? Again? Rick Forcier. Oh, yeah, so what kind of car does he have? Uh, I don't think he had a red truck. He had some other truck. Oh, big ass. <laughs> oh, yeah, that. Yeah, he did not, uh, he's not, there is no information that says that he had a red truck. But, um, is there any information on seven within that he might have left? He moved out of the area, but I think he moved to Alaska, but then he moved back to the area. He moved back and forth, and on the oxygen show, they actually chase him, they chase him down. And then in a parking lot, he pulls over in a parking lot, and they briefly, Maggie and Art, they chased down Rick Forcier, and they talked to him briefly. So, but they didn't include that in the series, in the show. I just want to make sure whether or not, because he usually has that Pennsylvania property, and you know, could supposedly dump the body, you know, the far distance away from the actual site. It's just, it would be so trail, I would think, to kind of recognize, okay, he left not too long after. A lot of people moved out of the area. I mean, that. Like, right after? Yeah. 
So, some people moved away and then moved back. You know what's, what's curious? We covered this when we covered the, the, the Taunton connection. Butchette was mother wanted to move for, to Florida because it was like too uh, cold up there. So they moved. They all moved to Florida, but then Butchette and his mother moved, moved back to Massachusetts area without like, like if it was her idea to move to Florida. Why is it? And nobody knows. We didn't interview her. I don't know if she's still alive or not, but. Uh, which Edward's wife is still alive. Okay. So she'd be a good interview. Let's, Let's try to it. get her on the podcast. Let's do it. She probably doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, she'll change her story just to get rid of us. Oh, and one of the only 911 transcripts that hasn't been released is hers, which Edward's wife. Hmm. What do you mean it hasn't been released? It hasn't been released. So in the 911 transcripts, like, Butch's was released and the oh. Westman's. Originally, it was thought that Butch's transcript might contain something, although he does mention a he in the transcript. Why would they, like, they release it? The same reason they didn't release the ATM video for for all those years. They don't release anything. What the hell is this shit? <laughs> they don't release anything. Maxwell, you knew this case? <laughs> <laughs> they, don't uh, release, they, they don't release nothing. Well, so. Let's put this way. Why would they do that shit? Maybe it's just. I'm sorry. Maybe it's just not important. Maybe it's just like, like her whining about her cat or some shit. No, she called the police in reference to the more accident. They called it, and she actually stated something like the female is not at the car. She said, I mean, like, it's like they were looking for her. There's so much strangeness with the whole That's thing. Right. We're going to have to demand for that shit. Some people are. Freedom of information requests and all that jazz. Let's do it. So we'll see if it's already being done. Okay. So, well, not enough um, done. We'll see. <laughs> so there might be something on that call. But, uh, well... So we, why were we talking about Butch? We were talking about first year. Oh, you were talking about people moving out of the area. Yeah, there was a bunch of people that moved uh, in and out of the area. All right. So, any final thoughts on Rick Forcier? So he did move out of he moved out of that. He moved from the accident scene, but he's still around New Hampshire. And a brief stint in Alaska. And a bunch of those people in those areas, they keep moving. They move back and forth between like Vermont and Maine to New Hampshire, just jump around a bit. So let's go into Claude Moulton. So this is the guy whose brother claimed there was a deathbed confession that Claude Moulton killed Maura Murray. And then he gave Fred Murray, Maura's father, the bloody knife, the blood-stained knife. And then Fred attempted to turn it into like a highway patrol station. They didn't take it, so he mailed it in. And... So this is this is kind of weird. So he he's got this bloody knife, and he could be her his daughter's blood yes, on it. Take the risk and he's he's gonna out. mail it. Okay. I don't know because because, because that police didn't reject it. There's that particular station. I would have just. Why drove would you reject that freaking piece of evidence? I would just. I would just drove to a police like I don't know if I'm mail But anyway, regardless, that that's not doesn't really have anything to do with okay the exact situation with Claude. So, Claude. Sorry, it's just I don't know. As a father, especially after all this time, I figured he would have got done at some place private to make sure. So he know for a fact. At the time, though, I don't think he. I don't know if he was that disillusioned with the police yet. It was all this multitude of pylon. Like if that happened today, I don't think he'd be. I think he would be taking it to a private lab or the FBI or something. I don't think he would, because even on his last. One of the last TV news broadcasts he did, he's like, if you have information, contact the FBI. Like, he didn't put 
the state, like, his hierarchy was so, he put the state police in Haverhill all the way at the bottom <laughs> of who you should contact. So, Wait, so this guy gave the knife to Fred, Fred and then where did he get the knife from? His brother. And he said his brother on his deathbed said that he killed him, and then he told him where so that's Larry Moulton said that about his brother Claude. Now, Claude is still alive, by the way. But why wouldn't he tell her, tell him where she is? I don't know if he, I think that's all the information he had, because I think... If the story's made up, he's like, oh, he was dying, and he said he killed her, and he was like, that's all he said. Just for the element to close the case. Yeah. Yeah. It's never going to come out. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. So, Claude Moulton, did, he, he was who was renting the, a, the mysterious A-frame house. The A-frame house has been the focus of a lot. Uh, Fred and other PIs were doing dog searches. They were searching with cadaver dogs, and they actually got a hit in the A-frame, supposedly a wet bonkers, like the dog went bonkers, and they found blood-stained carpet and chips with blood on it. Chips? Like the I don't know, chips. wood chips, carpet chips, oh. whatever. And these were, now I think John Smith is the one that had these. He didn't give it all to the police. He kept some from, he, he, they kept the sample as well so they can get it privately tested. <laughs> and so in the oxygen show, they revealed that the DNA test was inconclusive, so it could possibly match more, and there was also other blood. How there. do they match it to more anyway? Yeah. They got her sister's DNA. It, 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 it works. familial link. And they, I think they also did have, like, more as hairbrushes yeah. and stuff, yeah. whatever. So they could have got it from other sources as well. Yeah. And they actually just inconclusive. They do the test one time. So it could be ruled no, out a certain portion of the population. So more mm. mm. was not ruled out though. So th there was enough sequencing matching where she's one of the possibilities. Many other people are possibilities mm. as well. But certain people would be ruled out if they don't have that. So she's still within the range of a possible match. Now here's where it gets tricky. So Claude Moulton actually rented that house out and he had a girlfriend who uh, looked exactly like Moro at the time. Yeah. Wait, how old is this guy? He's old, so he, I guess he would have been in his 50s. And then he's dating a 21-year-old? Uh, oh, no. she might have been 17. <laughs> okay, so at the time when they started, I don't know exactly. Or they might have started dating when she was 15, I don't know. Oh, I thought I thought it was like, no, wait, I thought... We're talking about we're talking about Hebrew home, New Hampshire. Yeah, we, <laughs> wow, but he might have been forty or or yeah, younger exactly. when they first. I don't know the exact details, but supposedly she has not said nice things about him. And if he beat her up a lot, that could be her blood and his blood. Possibly they don't know. On the knife, what? On the oh well, I don't know if they checked the knife for his girlfriend's. I'm talking about the blood they found in the carpet. Okay. That might not be Morris. Okay. Oh, and by the way, the blood test we're referring to is on the carpet, not the knife right now. Oh, okay. the show. I don't think the police ever said what happened. I don't think the police themselves officially stated they got the knife and they tested the knife. I think they just said everything's ongoing or whatever. So they don't really reveal the details. Okay. Does that make sense? I mean, not really, but... <laughs> <laughs> so... Now, are you ready for some of the most bizarre coincidences you've ever heard? Okay. I've heard a lot so far. Oh, there's, so, there's so many more? You have no idea? Jean Ellen Casavaro of Vermont was last seen at the exact intersection where Rick Forcier claimed to have seen a hooded runner. And this was in 1977. 
Jean Ellen Casavero of Vermont disappeared. Now, it was reported in the newspapers, and James Renner, in 2014, he contacted her family, and it was found that she had left her husband and children, but she came back a couple years later. So, here's what, and, and you think that was the coincidence? That wasn't the coincidence. Here's the coincidence. Shortly after she disappeared, her daughter married Claude Moulton. Hmm. That was his ex-wife. We're not talking about his younger girlfriend now. This was his ex-wife. Or one of possibly more than one ex-wife. I'm not sure. <laughs> what were you saying about 1977? That's when that woman disappeared. Okay. And her daughter married Claude Moulton. Okay. But that woman eventually came back. She wasn't killed. <laughs> she just disappeared. She just took off from her life and then eventually. So. Oh, well, Mora didn't do that yet. So well, James Renner seemed to. That was his main theory that that is what Mora did. But she's just going to pop up. He's like, hey guys, don't worry, I'm, I'm still alive. And then she really had to go for a while. So, okay, here are the details Claude Moulton was living with this young girlfriend. He met her when she was 14 and he was 34. And so they lived in the A frame house. And that's about a mile from where Mora was last seen. Supposedly, he had a red truck. Was a big ass red truck. So Claude said that his brother Larry made the story up about Mora in order to get the reward money that was posted for Mora. Sounds about right. And so Larry himself supposedly had a history of drug abuse hmm. and was a shady character himself. And but Claude, so people always ask, well, whatever happened to Claude Moulton? Did nobody investigate the bloody red knife? Police arrested or brought in Claude Moulton for questioning and having to take a lie detector test, the results of which have never been released. Oh, okay. So just not inconclusive. But I guess they let him go. And he, Claude also has a history of uh, domestic violence. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, I don't know how much of this is a rumor, but after Larry told the police about Claude, he got rid of his car, which was a red Volvo. Red Volvo. Yes. He also worked at a scrapyard, so he could have gotten rid of cars easily. Oh. So, this is what James Renner says about Claude. He is a good guy, a smart guy. Hmm. Now, this is what Claude says about Moore Murray. Was obviously an alcoholic young lady. She ain't dead. No one abducted her. She'll come back one day. That girl, she's an effing hoe, a drunken hoe, and her father, an effing perv. You know what I mean? <laughs> I <laughs> talking about? He's talking about Maura and her father. And he's a hoe. <laughs> yeah. She ain't coming back. But I find interesting that you said just. Just before saying that, I said he was a smart and good guy. I admit, to be honest with you, just hearing that comment, that, that's more in line with what I was thinking. That sounds about right. I said that whole thing completely wrong. Oh, oh, okay. No, no, James, no, no, they're both named James. James Renner talked to James Casavara. Oh. So this is Gene, uh, the one that ran away. Mm-hmm. I, I guess this, it doesn't say who he is either. I guess he's her either husband or family relative. And James Casavaro 
said this about Claude, and then he said that about Maura Murray. So he doesn't even know anything about the case, I guess. And he's talking about Maura Murray on the phone. Oh. Oh, he's going to say that comment about Maura and all that, right? So all that was still said about Maura. Yes, by, by James Casavaro, not by James, not by Claude or James Renner. Okay, cool. That, that's not good. <laughs> okay. So Claude used to work for, for a car crushing company. You know, so she could have been put in a truck or something and then just crushed. Did they ever check the uh, crushing yard? I don't. That's the thing. I don't think anybody really, really checked anything in this game. <laughs> mm. um, and supposedly Claude also has quite a few children with quite a few different women. Okay. That sucks. So John Smith said that uh, one of Claude's exes said that he told her to say that he was dead. To say that he was dead? Yes. And he currently lives in Piermont, New Hampshire, which is in the Piermont-Warren, New Hampshire area, which we'll get to in a minute, which is very substantial in this case. I think he was the one that moved to Maine now, and he owns a trucking company now. Local rumors are that he liked to kill animals and leave them on his property. <laughs> I guess as a display. And here's here's the other thing: if, if he was truck, like if he was into, he has a trucking company now. If he did other trucking work, he could easily dispose of bodies if he was so inclined. So. So, other, other rumors were that apparently Claude had a twin brother when he was younger, and there were rumors that his twin was suspicious, the, the, the demise of his twin was very suspicious. He died of a head injury, and yeah, a lot of weirdness. It doesn't say the exact age. Other people say that Claude was involved in a lot of shady stuff, possibly also with the police, and... There were certainly quite a few murders and disappearances in that small area. Oh, man. Some people point the finger at Claude. Now, in order for a fair and balanced view, I am going to read something in defense of Claude. So apparently this is his uh, nieces. This was one of his relatives posted this on Facebook. Mm. Take it for what you will. Okay, I want to clear things up about my Uncle Claude. Everybody is thinking that he was a part of what happened to Maura. What nobody is saying is that his brother was a drug-addicted a-hole who wanted the money that Maura's family had for an award so he could get out of jail. For everyone who lives in the Haverhill area knows that in order to make a decent money, in order to make decent money to live on, you have to work your ass off just to make ends meet. Claude has always logged and scrapped ever since I could remember. So yes, Claude was questioned once he was cleared. They had found out that his brother had lied about him. Claude would never harm any woman. He is the most genuinely loving man that I know. Yes, he is my cousin's father, but he will always be my uncle. I know for a fact that if I needed help, and if he could physically do it, he would be the first to my rescue. So please, I am asking everybody to stop putting the blame on Claude. He is a very lovable man, and I apologize to Morris family for opening wounds. So, once again, I don't know if that uh, makes Claude more innocent, because a lot of 
psychopathic serial killers were certainly very nice to their own family members. Oh my god, you're such a nice person. I can't believe you did all those terrible things. <laughs> and what she said was true. He might actually help her with anything. That you know. But anyway, so what do you guys think of Claude Moulton? Just to address some of these rumors and the fact that he was, you know, on a lot of people's number one suspect list. And just to clarify, we're viewing him as a person of interest and potential suspect. It's certainly possible he killed Mora, but maybe he did. I don't know if they were, you don't think it's likely, Maxwell? No. Yeah, close. I don't know if there was never an alibi. Uh, um, to clarify the thing where his girlfriend looked exactly like Mora. Supposedly, the young girlfriend that he was living with at the time in the A-frame house looked like Mora. People said she's a dead ringer for Mora. And she was a lot younger than That's said? Yes. So the Wait, people in that and area... the A-frame, oh, when you say A-frame house, he was... He was in that group. Oh, no, I understand the A-frame house, but I just didn't know that he was... He's the renter of the A-frame house that they found the blood. He rented the house of his girlfriend. <laughs> Well, also keep this in mind, it's still at night, so even if she doesn't look exactly like Mara, if she looks similar to Mara, same height, same build, yeah. same length hair, same color hair, same yeah. color eyes, gotcha. you know, it's close cool. enough. Right, so okay, move on, let's move on to the next guy. Um, I just want to show you how Claude, is she still alive? Or? Yes, Claude Moulton's still alive. Claude Moulton's still alive, okay. And who was it again that, um... Well, he had given the, it was him that gave the knife instead of his brother. His brother, his brother came to Fred with the knife. Okay. So some people say his brother made up the whole story. Oh. Since Claude Moulton is still alive and was never on his deathbed. Yeah, of course. Obviously. The allegations are that Larry Moulton yeah, that, made yeah. the whole thing up to get reward, reward money. To pay for drugs and all that. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure. Like, someone was... So a lot of crazy rumors about Claude killing his twin brother and uh, being involved in shady stuff. Also keep in mind like the, the oh the concrete slab is at the A-frame house. So right now they're like raising money to do uh, a grand, ground penetrating radar scan on, on that whole area. How much is Ooh. it? I don't know. Who lives there now? Nobody I don't know if anybody lives there, but the owners changed hands multiple times. French is selling his car. I think they're already they got it. They're gonna do it. And so the results, uh, yeah. So the results will be done. So some people think, since Claude, if Claude really was shady, or if other owners were, there could be some dead bodies in that area, but it might not be Mora. And all the blood in the house could be from a crime, just not Mora. Yeah, true. So I mean, so that's all we have on Claude Moulton. You know what the uh, supposedly his girlfriend, his girlfriend looking a lot like uh, Mora Murray still, like. Uh, Johnny was saying I mean, she's alive as well right there, so makes you wonder. Makes you wonder what? I mean, what was, it, what was that previous theory that apparently she was trying to run away with somebody, you know, was just trying to get the claw on it. <laughs> no, but that other girlfriend was already there, oh. and they have her name. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was there before and after the <laughs> oh, Man, I'm disappointing all my uh, mental associates right now. <laughs> 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 All right, so 
Final thoughts on Claude. Maxwell doesn't think he's responsible for some reason. Yeah, I'm just. See, if the rumor is true that after his brother went to police, he got rid of his car, I mean, that could just mean he was involved in other crimes. Not necessarily more, but he was spooked that the police would investigate him. And then he's since moved out of the area as well. So. All right, let's get to some people that aren't normally talked about. Let's get some new people on this POI list. We have the G Brothers. The Word. G? That's us, right? <laughs> not the G's. <laughs> the G Brothers. So, not going to say their full last name, but everybody knows who they are who's been following the case. And if you don't, you don't need to know their full name. They're the G Brothers. They're construction workers who had a red truck. Oh, my God. So there's also some shadiness involved in how... So the witness that saw the red truck looking for someone... Now, the, uh, the G Brothers don't have Massachusetts plates. They have New Hampshire plates. So the license plates allegedly were tracked down when this, when this truck was witnessed at the Swiftwater stage shop by a witness looking for someone, and then it drove off when it realized that the witness was not who they were looking for. Supposedly, the license plates were run, and it came back to these G Brother guys. But other sources claim that there were no license plates ever taken because the witness didn't get the plates. I think she got like two, possibly two letters of the plates, and unless someone in the shop, like the shop owner, got the plates, but that has never been corroborated in any way. The other problem with the witness who reported the red truck is that she's supposedly she might be related to one of the other suspects and then rumor is that she moved out of the area before she reported it this is all rumors can't so i don't know but john smith has something to say about the g brothers here's what he said about them i will say that around 2006 that they used to rent equipment from the company that I worked for in Littleton, New Hampshire. We were an all-around rental agency that catered to contractors and construction workers. The G Brothers used to rent stuff from us quite often and at one point actually ended up renting stuff, not bringing back the equipment, owing us money and never paying. After several phone calls and a small claims court attempt by my boss, nothing was ever resolved. The brothers never even showed up for court. After several more phone call attempts were made, they showed up at our business and threatened me with bodily harm. One of them said that he knew Taekwondo and would tear me to pieces. <laughs> They're dreaming. My brother was also working at this business and he ended up coming out with a phone in his hand and told them to get off the property or we were going to call the police. Of course they left the premises and we never heard from them again. They are very volatile people. They are also thieves. All things for the brother versus brother melee. Yeah, two sets of brothers. It's Taekwondo throwdown. <laughs> so here's where it gets a little even more shady. So supposedly it wasn't just these two brothers. There could have been a third family member, possibly cousin. And one of the rumors or possibilities is that this was the other boyfriend of Mora, which she was going up to the area. Oh. And it's possible that one of them, if this wasn't one of these two brothers and it was their cousin or whoever, if one of them was in the car at the time, so one of the brothers could have been missing from the scenario. It could have only been one of them and then a cousin or someone else or a friend. And if, if one of them worked at Loon Mountain, that's where the Loon... The Loon Mountain 3 is a local rumor that three guys that worked at Loon Mountain did not show up for work the morning after the disappearance 
couple more left. So if this story somehow got conflated with the G brothers, or one of the G brothers is involved, or a cousin or a friend of the G brothers, whatever, there was another rumor that they rented a house in Haverhill, and that's where Mora was going. Fred Murray, when he was investigating in the area, he actually followed a red truck, and he traced, and he took it to an address that was rented by the G brothers. What was uh, the day of the week that this happened? That was Monday. On Monday? Yeah, the Monday. That's kind of weird. Yeah, beginning of the week. Was she on break from college? No, that wasn't break. So they got back from break recently, so they, they hadn't been back from that for that long. And she actually sent out an email that morning telling her professors there was a death in the family. So she wouldn't be at class. And there wasn't? No. Unless you're James Renner and you're theorizing, one of his theories was she was going up somewhere to get an abortion because she was pregnant. <laughs> what if she was trying to kill herself? Like she's the death. That was one of the other theories that was brought forward, but it's just given all the information, it just seems unlikely. Because she's still got the accident forms to give to her father. Like all the things don't point to that. She killed herself. Maybe someone drove by and saw the body and looked at it like, ooh. A necrophiliac psycho? That's the new. Th that's a new theory put out by Sid Irwin. Yeah, yeah but the, the Westmans were watching. Unless it was the Westmans. It could be just as much. <laughs> they could have looked at it like, wow. Okay, so final little tidbit. Very interesting. So complaints were: How come the police never interviewed people at Loon Mountain or tried to track down the Loon Mountain Three? Are the Loon Mountain Three known to police? The answer is yes. Someone who lived in Lincoln, New Hampshire, said that two guys who worked at Moon Mountain were interviewed by police. So the police did investigate. Wait, I was just going to say something. Uh, and one of the other rumors was, of course, that she had a boyfriend at Moon Mountain. It's so hard to say. So they, they ended up just not showing up to work. Oh, well, the there's day. no... That's the Moon Mountain theory, yeah, which is a rumor. Now, uh, people were interviewed because one of them could potentially be the other boyfriend that Mora was coming to see, but the G brothers were renting a house in the area. So, it's all up in the air. We need more information. We don't have it. <laughs> I'm sure the police looked at them. They must have looked at them. Again, if they aren't involved. <laughs> okay. Now we're going... Oh, so one of the other rumors is that the boyfriend that worked at Moon Mountain, he had a girlfriend who disappeared around the same time as Mora did. So if, if that's, yeah, but here's the thing, if they're talking about Mora, then that's what that rumor is. Yeah. If it's someone else, then that guy probably had nothing to do with Mora. Because, unless you're saying he's a serial killer and he kills his girlfriends, but then there's only two I'll say there. everybody is serial killer, so he's had to get a piece of the pie. That place can operate. Like, that place is like the Bermuda Triangle, like. Yeah, apparently. For, uh, that's. And we this happen. People disappearing all over the place. I'm going there. You want Statistics stay on. All right, that's intriguing. It's weird. It's weird. The G brothers. All right, so now the most famous unnamed person of interest. So he owns a construction company. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, so he owns a construction company. What do you? Uh, so here is 
Is that important that he has a construction company? Of course, because it's pouring concrete. Let's name him something. Let's name him something. Hold on. Remember in one of the first podcasts, there were two concrete foundations being poured? This is the other guy, oh, other shit. than Rick Forcier. Oh, okay. Well, so, so we did mention the name. This is. No, we didn't mention his name. You mentioned, oh, first mentioned there were guys, there were people pouring concrete. Okay. We specifically said we don't have his name. No, no, I'm talking about the first episode. I'm yeah. talk, like, we specifically said we don't know his name. Oh, okay. At the time we did. Oh, I didn't know. Well, that's what I just <laughs> So now we know. Uh, he's concrete, man. He's concrete. Concrete. Uh, Mr. Concrete. Number concrete, too. Okay. So this is what several posters from the area said about him. His family basically owns Woodsville. People think he's a psycho. His family is not cooperating with law enforcement. He's got an ex-wife. What does that do? That's a big thing. It's an ex-wife. His father actually owns the concrete company. Okay. And that strangely, the company poured a brand new concrete floor shortly after Morris' disappearance. Okay. Police were denied access to the property to search. And this is not the A-frame house? No. no but it's close. Uh, everything's kind of sort of close. This is that area. So, the witness, the red truck witness at the state shop said that the truck had an eagle emblem. This guy was also part of the National Guard, which has an eagle as its emblem, so he might have that on the truck. Okay. If the truck had an eagle emblem. Okay, this guy's also friends with Lavoie and Lavoie's towing. <laughs> Remember there was that strange, the towing company? Yeah. Switcheroo? Yeah. So in the area, people have known about this guy, and he has a connection in the court system. So supposedly he wouldn't be prosecuted no matter what anyway. And one of the psychics actually said that. But anyway, so... Apparently, law enforcement has asked to search his property multiple times, and he's always denied. And they're not able to get a warrant, I guess, since there's nothing concrete enough to get the concrete guy. <laughs> yes. But if you just said he has connections in the court, so yeah, I imagine someone might know. So his, his aunt is the state attorney. Oh, that's the connection. Yeah, that's a good one. So, yeah. Oh, so here's the reference to the ex-wife. The ex-wife apparently moved to Vermont and went into hiding to get away from him. And as ex-wives do, like Rick Forcier's ex-wife said the same thing, that he was responsible for more, blah, blah, blah. So this, this ex-wife also said the same thing. Well, you know, this he an ex-wife clearly, you know, his relationship with women. Yeah. It's in this case, this particular. Who knows? So anyway, law enforcement did find it highly suspicious that he's pouring concrete in the winter, right after Morris' disappearance. I think this was two weeks after the disappearance. So they thought it was suspicious and asked to search the property. He said no. They also asked to do ground penetrating radar, and they were said no. I mean, what would you say if you didn't do it? Like you, you just be like, okay, fine. It's a, it's a, I, would, I would say I would say yes, but they would have to sign a contract to to uh, pay for the damages. Like if they if they. Oh, oh actually, you just gave me a good idea. I would do this. I would say I would 
grant a conditional warrant that anything they found that had nothing to do with war with Mora could never be used against me in the court of law. Is that way? If they're doing um, drugs or any other shady things, if they have immunity from anything except Mora, if they agree, if the police agree to that, because then that would prove you have nothing to do with Mora. So then you're, and then they can't they can't try you for anything else. If you're into shady stuff, but if you're not into anything, and you're like a, a community leader or whatever, if you're a big person in the community, you might say yes just to shut them up. So like, depending on who you are. So hopefully no one buried anyone there last week. And so the other thing with the red trucks, their entire construct, their entire uh, company has red trucks. <laughs> and there was no reports of stolen trucks, right? What? There was no reports of stolen trucks. I don't believe so. I think there was a stolen vehicle in the area, but... I mean, that happened, that's when we a red truck. Now, some people think that James Conrad was a state trooper who was involved in the Maura Murray case, and he said that the police know who did it. They just aren't doing anything about it. That he was poured and found that that Moore is buried in concrete under the suspect's house, and they know who did it. And so it wasn't Rick Forcier who was talking about it; it was this guy. So, Mr. Concrete Man, <laughs> number two. <laughs> the other thing people say is that Con Conrad was in a dispute. He was in a lawsuit with the police, so they were saying he was just saying that or whatever. And then after the fact, he kind of backtracked. Once he got like a million dollars, I don't think he kind of backtracked on those comments. Uh -oh. But it is kind of strange that he put that out there because this is kind of local rumor and info. So it's not something completely made up. What was with the million dollars? Where is that? He was in some kind of dispute with the police over unlawful alleged stops or termination or whatever. But still, though. Even make a comment referring to that case, which we shouldn't be involved in. That's interesting. And obviously, the police know about this guy. He's a person of interest. And I'm gonna get into. So the the attorney is friends. So his relative, that's an attorney, is friends with Gary Wood. Gary Wood is the lawyer for the Haverhill Police Department in 2004. So. I'm going to read something kind of funny. Valley News, August 30th, 2016. Woodsville attorney indicted. Wait, 2016? Yeah. Valley News is a newspaper for yes. the area? Yeah. Okay. So this is Woodsville. A 63-year-old Woodsville attorney has been indicted by a Grafton County grand jury on accusations that he failed to distribute nearly $44,000 he had been holding on behalf of the estate of a Haverhill farmer. Gary J. Wood, who operated a law office on Pine Street in the village of Woodsville, faces a felony count of theft by misapplication of property. He was disbarred this summer, according to documents on the State Bars Association website, for allegedly commingling and misappropriating clients' funds. So, <laughs> Wood was supposed to later the, return the money to the estate, but recklessly failed to make the payment and treated the said funds as his own, according to the indictment. Smart guy. <laughs> so this is basically a corrupt attorney that is the attorney for the Haverhill Police Department, yeah. who's now been disbarred. That's awesome. 
The phone at Wood's law office was disconnected and attempts to reach him on Monday were unsuccessful. New Hampshire's court records don't indicate who his attorney is. Uh, and then, so this concrete man's uh, relative, the county attorney, declined to comment on the case. <laughs> oh, that's great. And so he's been suspended from practicing law in New Hampshire. Oh, just in the So he's free to go anywhere else. Okay, so what do we think of concrete man? So he was also in the military as well. In the reserves, you said, right? You said, oh, it's that, okay. National Guard. National Guard. And he's been this, that he's been the main local rumor forever. So, other than Rick Forcier, Claude Moulton, he's, he's the number guy. What do you think, Maxwell? <laughs> Concrete man, is he the guy? Is his connection in the, in the, in the court system make him think he's immune to the law? <laughs> That's interesting. And he also he owns like a bunch of property right next to the accident site, like near Benton, where the psychics and and Ben. Can you send that down in any of this? I don't know. That was their own one of their own homes is where they put down the concrete floor the weeks after she went missing. Highly suspect, uh, like of course concrete in the winter. So we got Rick Forcier doing it, and I'm not going to do it. I'm kind of I'm kind of like off season myself. Like I do weird stuff like winter and summer and. Uh, just, just thought, like when you gotta get shit done. You know what I mean? Like you, yeah. You don't give a shit. Yeah, it's just yeah, I guess. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't make him guilty or anything. It's just yeah. it's highly suspect. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. if he never poured concrete in the winter any other year except the year she went missing. Yeah, I yeah, What do you think, John? Sid, nothing. <laughs> are we doing a podcast or what? <laughs> yeah, we are. Clearly, feels yeah. like a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, it's, there's too many new people. <laughs> I agree with that. There really are a lot of concrete man. New people, people. I mean, I, well, new for us too. What I hear about. Yeah. A lot of process. I mean, it makes the, the theories fly to me. Um, I mean, I agree with that though. It's suspicious if he's never done it before during that time of year. We well, maybe he has. We don't know, but but um, still though. I mean, you know, there's. The quote unquote potential for the red truck uh, connection and suspiciousness of um, him pouring the concrete. I mean, what other moment? Like, why would he be up there to deal with more Well, the other thing is, people of this family that basically, if they're stated, they own most of Woodsville, right, right, and that area, they're a big prominent family. If they're also a lot of members of this family were moving out of the area that month. Right. They're like moving back and forth and a lot of shady stuff going on. I imagine, but it could be, you know, again, a lot of shady stuff going on. Not to say that more Murray's yes. one of those shady things. He's could be like, yo, we have this whole pot. So you guys are all on the nay side when it comes to concrete. Well, so far out of the people we discussed, what are you, what, what are you guys thinking in probability terms? Or are, we, are you still fixated on the police conspiracy and it was a cop? <laughs> Uh, Johnny? <laughs> Maxwell? <laughs> Bruce? I've been talking this whole time! I'm tired of talking. What do you think? That's the most He's really shady, is what I think. That's what I think. So, I'm sure a lot of these people are involved 
in a lot of shady things. Not necessarily even illegal, but shady. Because, I mean, construction companies and contractors have notoriously been linked to mafia-type stuff. And of course, everybody's dealing drugs, so and if you got guys working with trucking companies and cargo, not saying these specific guys, but I'm sure they know people who are shady. So it's just by, you know, it's almost like a guilt by association where there's always going to be something shady going on somewhere. So if you're saying that, you say there's potential that whoever might have potentially, let's say, killed Mario. They knew who it was, yes. Yeah, they could have gone to him and said, hey, I need a body taken care of. Someone knows something, that's for sure. A lot of people aren't talking. Clearly someone knows something, the person who knows best is Mario. Because she's just not around, or is she? Oh. If you use your psychic powers, say, I mean, it's like, psychic powers and all that, and I'm involved right now. If I, if I clearly had any of those, we would have this discussion. This podcast wouldn't even exist, we've been over it since episode one. <laughs> well, you weren't on episode one. That's true. <laughs> it would have been over our last episode <laughs> when you first came on. Yeah. All right, so let's get any no final thoughts, Johnny Maxwell? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Alright, so Tell me. <laughs> some more unnamed locals. So Frank Kelly, a private investigator on the case, said this. During one of my many voyages up to Haverhill, New Hampshire, in the last in the late fall season of 2006, so this is two years after she went missing, I stopped over at a local restaurant for an early breakfast. During this period I was incognito, no shirt and tie, suit jacket and shine shoes on this visit, wearing a red checkered hunting jacket, scent free boots, and a blaze orange cap. It was bow hunting season, and I was there scouting areas to later be searched by our team. It truly is beautiful wilderness country up in the great Northwoods, and hunting is not a pastime up there. It's a way of life for many northern New Hampshire residents. So, as to not insult anyone, I won't mention the name of the restaurant. It's currently called Shiloh's. All the locals know the one I refer to, but it's very large, and I was seated alone at a table perusing my topo maps while waiting for my breakfast. There were four men seated at a table behind me, similarly attired, discussing a house fire the previous night and laughing about the total loss of the property. When one of the men said they got what they deserved and the others agreed, these four men were not out of towners, nor were they hunters. They were local guys of the lowest ilk. My breakfast arrived. It was a huge breakfast for the cost of a Dunkin' Donuts meal. And as I eat, I overheard several comments about this one and that one, who the rats were and what they had in mind in dealing with these people. Now, during the hour I was there, I ear witnessed those referred to here on this forum as scumbags, dirtbags firsthand. There is little doubt in my mind that there are some very bad people living up in that area, criminals, in fact. I did report the conversation I overheard to the authorities, along with the descriptions, date, time, and registration numbers for vehicles. I have a duty to do so. These guys were not sitting next to me. They were behind me, and they, they didn't seem too concerned who may have overheard them. The location was actually in Haverhill, across from the Nuptia Motel, not Swiftwood. Okay, so this is what he's saying about the locals. So, okay, cool. So nothing to do with Laura Murray, just like, what kind of people live up there? Well, who knows? And anyway, Because he's talking about scumbags, dirtbags, and rats, so people that are reporting on the illegal activity, which may be connected to Bob. What about the house? Is that real? Like, anybody figure anything about that? Uh, so I don't know if, I don't think anybody ever tracked that down, but yes, there should be a record of it if there was a fire. But yeah. Supposedly there was also some kind of a brush fire the night Mora went missing. 
But I don't think they ever fully tracked it down. What was, what was the brush fight? I don't know. Isn't it kind of weird? Like fire, brush fire, middle of February, cold yeah. winter, really cold out there. I don't know. Kind of have to be intentional. Well, again, these are. I don't know if any of this has been corroborated. So, just mostly pure speculation. So by him saying that, though, it, uh, there's supposed to be some uh, bad people in the area. Well, Frank Kelly, that's one of the original PIs, part of the League of Private Investigators, along with uh, Kiwi, who uh, they seem to think the accident was staged, mm -hmm. and that the car did not hit a tree, and that Butch Atwood saw what happened, but he was afraid to fall. So, just so you know, the background on the PI is what they say. Well, I mean, if, it, if it's staged, I just wanted to think about if it's staged. I imagine, I just have to think it can't be anybody professional who did it because, I mean, clearly it was good now. You know, better than do that. Unless it just had nothing to do with that. Yeah. It just, it's a thought. This guy's a quote unquote testimony about the. Uh, People, the scumbags, dirtbags, and rats. <laughs> it also makes it, if that were to be true, what us say to it, it is, that would make it uh, that much more intriguing, like you said, about the whole uh, few hour gap in the police uh, activity. So I imagine yeah. Yeah, people like that running around doing scumbags, dirtbaggy things. So, couple more, couple more uh, unnamed locals. There was another one who owned a red truck as well, who lived near the Weathern Barn. And a lot of these people, they repainted their trucks. So, again, that doesn't make them guilty. But if everybody thinks they're guilty, they're like, I don't want to deal with this. I'm just not gonna have a red truck. <laughs> so, that might be it, but we don't know. But the other interesting thing is that this person. The family was from the Whitman Hanson area, Morris hometown. Which means someone who lived really close to the crash site that had a red truck. Their family okay. was from the same hometown as Mora. Back where she's from Massachusetts. Yes. And this person is also related to Barbara Atwood. Hmm. Oh. A lot of strange connections here. But dude's uh wife, right? Yes, but yeah, that's right. I was thinking about this from like the last podcast, uh could she have, like, maybe picked up a hitchhiker? That's what I was thinking. Oh, I don't know if that's ever been proposed. Because really? That is an interesting idea. Yeah, I've never, I've never heard hitchhiker. that before. Like, she, like yeah. you said, somebody was smoking, possibly, or there was two well, people. Well, the other back there. window was cracked. Or, 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 yeah, someone was walking along. And she, she might have just felt bad like, and just yeah. picked them up. Or, or, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> that's interesting, yeah. We never really explored that. If the police have, like, gas station footage or even, I don't know, anything, because the gas was full, so she, she filled up the gas tank shortly before. Why that road? Why'd she go down that road? I know we no. talked about there's a possible party. So like, how, how far is that from the actual highway? Because that's a random small road, right? Well, again, if we're going by through. the theory that she knew someone at Moon Mountain who was renting a house in the area, that could be why she went off the road to meet that person. And that's really close. Like, you would take that road to get there. Who knows? Well, that's pretty close for Loon Mountain, yeah. Hmm. Or she, she got lost. lost. Yeah, she yeah, she not GPS, lost. We most likely no GPS. Just she had MapQuest directions in the car. To a couple different places. But, so, okay, a lot of other strange people in the area. There was someone who's, all, who's been convicted of impersonating a police officer who also lived by the accident scene. Hmm. So, if this... 
Clearly. It wasn't Jeff Williams or Cecil Smith. It could have been somebody else pretending to be a police officer to gain their trust. And then they took her. Well, it could have been a Butch And then there were also two sex offenders who lived nearby the crash site. One of which has strange connections to family of people involved in the case. And who also moved out of the area at the same time as Rick Forcier and the second sex offender, who may have all known each other. The second sex offender has possible ties to Greg Floyd, who will we get into now. Another major person of interest who doesn't really get enough examination is Greg Floyd. Maxwell, of course, knows who Greg Floyd is, because we covered him a little bit on some of the other podcasts. <laughs> Greg Floyd's a player. No. She, um, Laura Murray had a job. Did she have a lot of money? Or No, she didn't have a lot of money. She worked in an parents, and her parents were rich. No. Not rich. No, her parents were separated. They didn't have a lot of money. Okay. That's so why she drove such a crappy She didn't have that much money, right? So, she's, uh, what, 21? Yeah. So she went to the ATM machine to do what? Like, pull out, like, five bucks or, like, ten bucks? What if she purposely went to the ATM? To make, because she knew that her face was going to be captured. And uh, that was the whole purpose, more so to, because something was going on before even going to the ATM. Maybe she was forced to go there to take money. I don't, I don't know. Just be, to shoot it so that there's proof out there that something was happening. I get that. I mean, I'm that. saying, like, if she doesn't have a purpose to go to the ATM, so yeah, she doesn't I, have any Well, she took money for the trip. If she's going to the White Mountains for a week to get away from school and everything, just to kind of chill, mm. she needs cash. Exactly. So, so I don't think she had a credit card. So she may so have a lot of money, but not to say she had no money. No, she didn't have zero money. It was uh, whatever, a couple hundred bucks, and then supposedly the four thousand dollars Fred more Fred brought that weekend to look for a car, but nobody knows what it was really for because it could have been just to repair the car if she was involved in the Katrina Bessie. Hmm. But anyway, there was frames in the ATM footage, right? Well, it's it's old footage, so it's not a lot of frame. It's a bunch of frame. It's a video, so I don't know what the frame rate is. It's not that high. But do you ask? You probably curious to see what her uh, face might look like, any yeah, expressions, yeah, yeah. and stuff yeah, like that. She didn't look happy at all. Like, does yeah. she make eye contact with the camera lens? Not really. Mm-hmm. Well, she also had a really bad sleeping schedule because she's up half the night, and she's also in a nursing program, so she's got. So her schedule is insane, and she has two jobs, and her sleeping patterns are erratic. She, she, she looked, I mean, I get those. Maybe you can wonder, maybe she looked like just either weary, tired, been doing that. Sort of like, maybe like a more panic kind of weird. Yeah. I don't know. And I mean, also, if we were doing the podcast, you could have watched the video in like two seconds. Well, these <laughs> ideas come along like while we talk, though. Yeah. yeah. Actually, did we just talk about this uh, AT video? Yeah. Okay. Oh, you didn't know about the ATM video? I mentioned in the last podcast. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. All right, so Greg Floyd, Maxwell. So, uh, are you still part of this podcast? You haven't said anything in like half hour. Well, I don't know who that is, so you're assuming that I know. Actually, you're just kidding that I know, but you don't no, know, you know that I know. Greg Floyd <laughs> is the guy, so Bruce McKay yeah. worked with Greg Floyd. So remember, Bruce McKay shot Lyco Kenny and killed him. Bruce McKay just happened to be at the scene somehow and then shot Lyco Kenny and killed him. So some people speculate that Greg Floyd was a police informant because that's why he got away with all this crazy behavior. And that he may have been working with uh, Bruce McKay as a kind of a tag team to do messed up stuff. 
Bruce McKay is also known as Officer Pepper because he likes to use pepper spray on anyone and everybody, including oh, old yeah. women. Uh, yeah. If you like audiobooks or audio shows, check out a free trial of Audible. Just click the link in the description. Welcome to the Mind Shock Podcast, True Crime. This is the Maura Murray series. I'm your host, Bruce McGuire. Maxwell Powers here. Johnny Mills back at it again. Hi there, sit everyone here. So today, we are going to finally do a complete rundown of persons of interest in the case. We don't want to outright call all of them suspects because some of them have not been quite named as suspects and there'll be some new names on the list of people that haven't really been talked about before. Uh-uh. Where do these people come from? North Haverhill. <laughs> so I'm going to propose that we have to question absolutely everything and everyone's testimony, especially Butch Atwood. So we can't really trust anything anybody says. So we're going to be looking at everybody highly critically. Not necessarily as a suspect, but kind of like as a potential suspect. All right, so quick overview. Since uh, Johnny and Sid haven't been with us that long, but they got an introduction (laughs) to the case. So Maura Murray allegedly had a car accident just past the corner of the weather barn. It was actually a couple hundred yards. Almost all the information on this case that is available is inaccurate, including the super sharp turn right after the weathered barn, which was allegedly responsible for a spin out, even though the roads were dry that night and there was no snow on the road. So it was actually a couple hundred yards past the weathered barn where her car did a 180 and ended up on the opposite side of the road. Now, there were conflicting reports on whether she hit a snowbank or a tree, but there were several accident reconstruction experts that took a look at the site and the car, and they all concluded that the car did not crash into a tree. Now, I don't know if we talked about it this last time, but there was a hit and run on campus at UMass, Patrick Vassie. And that morning, that Monday morning, that Mora took the trip up into the White Mountains, allegedly, that was the morning when they announced that Patrick Vassi was in a coma from the hit and run to the university. And he might potentially die. So coincidence or not, whether she took off because of that or because someone else borrowed her car and was responsible for hit and run. And whatever, there's so many rabbit holes you can go down, but it's possible that the accident to her vehicle, to the Saturn, occurred not at that site past the weathered barn in North Haverhill. And we spent a lot of time talking about that on some of the other podcasts. The weekend prior, supposedly her father, Fred Murray, was in town to help her buy a new car because the Saturn was, as they said, on its last legs. Last <laughs> Apparently wheel. it was only functioning on the flat. <laughs> last wheel. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, it wasn't functioning well, and she supposedly never really drove it. So where the damage was sustained is unknown. The event data recorder needs to be reset. 
So apparently the car was attempted to be restarted seven times, the airbags went off, all these things, but that could have happened elsewhere if the EDR was never reset. There'd be no information about the final accident or the final resting place of the Saturn in North Haver. Does that all make sense so far? Yeah. So wait, so you're saying the car that Maura Murray was supposedly driving that crashed, they checked the computer in the system yes. or, whatever, or yeah. the car? Yeah. And they were able to tell how many times things happened. Yes, yeah, so apparently you need to remove, there's yeah. a way to tell after the crash. Yeah, because so of the, the airbag, box. I guess. Yeah. Well, the CPU in the car records. So the key has to be taken out and put back in to start it. So supposedly the car could be started and driven out of there. But if whoever the driver was didn't know that, or if there was some other issue with the car, but it was magically okay later. So it supposedly could be driven. And one of the other witnesses, so the uh, the, the Westmans were right next to the accident. Butchette was on one side. Rick Forcier, which I don't think we talked about in the last podcast. Do we know who he is? Maxwell knows. Yeah. <laughs> Maxwell knows all these people. <laughs> Maxwell in the house! <laughs> Wait, it was so was Rick. <laughs> For those of you viewers that are listening now who just joined. Well, hold on, let me just name everybody. So Rick Forcier's there, and then there's also the Marats. And then there's all behind, and then behind all these houses is the Boutiers, who actually didn't even know that there was an accident on that, because they're kind of removed, they're a little bit away from the road. Lucky them? Yes. <laughs> so, that's the general accident site. Rick Forcier was actually like a carpenter, contractor type guy, who, uh, that night he said he was at home watching TV. So apparently he didn't see all the commotion about the police or the missing right outside on the street. Right. And that everybody listens to police scanners up there. Not absolutely everybody, but a lot of people do. So a few months later, he was making jokes around town about Maura Murray and how like he was keeping her in the basement or whatever, or he killed her. He was making like crazy jokes. This is Rick Forcio, right across the street from Butch Atwood. And eventually, his ex-wife either went to the police or someone else told went to the police about what he's talking about. And so they questioned him. He might have even done a lie detector test. They, they said there were several people that did lie detector tests whose names they didn't release. So then he changed his story. He said he wasn't home that night. He said he was actually driving home from a contracting job. And while he was driving home, he saw somebody in the hood five miles east of the accident site on the road. And he thought it was a guy, but it was a hooded figure, so it could have been more. And the police uh, took that sighting as credible. Now, I don't know why he just randomly changed the story like that, and he only went to the police when he was forced to, because people were complaining about the jokes he was making about Mora. So that's who Rick Forsey is. Apparently he moved to Alaska for a little bit too, and he likes to play the guitar. But, and he had children's toys in his front yard, so some people speculate that if Mora was looking to hide out from the police because she was DUI, and she wanted to wait it out. If she saw children's toys in like the front yard, she'd be less scared to go up to that particular house. Hmm. Wait, he had kids? No. He just had toys in his front yard? Yes. As, um, a, as a child? <laughs> no, it might have been from the previous owner, I don't know. Okay. He had, so he had a trailer also that was searched, and we'll get into him later. But anyway, the Westmans are the focus of a lot of eyewitness accounts. Their story has changed multiple times. Maxwell remembers when we went over multiple interviews <laughs> with the Westmans and how the story changed. But I found another interview from 2006 oh, would actually shed some light. Was the interview done by? I don't know. Hmm. 
It's uh, a random forum member. <laughs> so check this out. It's very interesting. Wait, wait. What, uh, so it's an interview with, with the Westmans. With the Westmans. Okay. So we're going to treat the Westmans not necessarily as suspects, but potential suspects. Because they've been caught in lies a bunch of times. And, well, one theory is that they were intimidated by the police. So if one of the main theories in the case is a police officer, either Cecil Smith or uh, Jeffrey Williams, either hit Mora on purpose or by accident, or, or whatever, and they killed her or... The body, she was dead, they dumped the body, and there was a huge cover-up, so they intimidated the Westmans and the other neighbors into not saying anything. Okay, so here's the interview. I went to North Haverhill on Route 112 to view the Moore Murray accident site. While there, I parked across the street from the Westman residence and saw that they were home in the kitchen and decided to interview them about what they had seen and done on February 9, 2004. I spoke to the Westmans in their kitchen after they invited us inside. They were interviewed together while we stood in their kitchen. During this time, I was able to get a direct view of what they would have seen that night. They had a very clear view of the accident scene. There was also a street light outside their house on the corner lighting up that area fairly well. The Westmans told us they were the first to see the accident scene. They heard the collision and watched out their window the entire time. Quick note, later on they said they weren't watching. So, what, what do you mean by later on? Like the official interviews by other yes. people? Yes, almost all of them. Yeah. So, this is interviews like, hey, I need the source for this. Like, this is a forum member? It was posted in 2006, though. Oh, it was 2006. <laughs> yeah, so the Oxygen show is, is really reignited interest in the case. So, the show that aired this past fall. Mm -hmm. uh, Maxwell and I actually watched some of it, but he apparently doesn't remember most of it. I saw one episode. I thought you watched the other one. One and a half episodes. No, 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 I only got to one and a half. So, they were interviewed. So, so their official story has changed a couple times. And also, the 911 transcript, which were sealed, they were just released in the past few months. And, they sh and it's very short. So, it's speculated that a huge portion of that was not redacted. It was completely removed, which is illegal. So, anyway, here in this interview, they're saying they saw it the entire time. So in 2004, they were interviewed, and they said they only saw some of it, and now somebody randomly went there 2006. They were interviewed a million times. They were probably the most interviewed, other than Bunch, because their house is right there. Yeah. And they were the... And the, story, the only story that changed was that uh, whether or not they saw it the whole time. No, they versus... also changed. Originally, Faith Westman said she saw a man smoking a cigarette in the driver's seat. Then later on, they were like... No, that must have been a cell phone light. They never. And then they so even said look at it, they even said they never said it was a man, but they did. Cause what's the distance? Do you know from the window to the street? Not that far. Maybe ten twenty feet. Kind of cool to see on like Google Maps just to understand that distance. You got to watch the podcast. I had all the maps on. See why they change like as like an aside. As an aside, they said that the tree the ribbon is on is the wrong tree that was hit in the accident and is actually closer to the corner. Neither of them went out to the scene. We'll address that later. When it happened, but Tim Westman said that he went out later after all the fire department people and police were there and saw the car close up. He said that there wasn't much snow on the snowbanks and that the car could be walked around without trouble. Again, that conflicts with what Butch Atwood said, because Butch Atwood said the car was completely up the snowbank, and Mora couldn't really get out. But he also said something different. Butch Atwood also changed his story a bunch of times. By the way, I actually believe this more than any other, uh, you know, I haven't seen them, but 
I believe this more just because this guy is probably like one person and they probably probably had like no idea. Do, no idea. Yeah, yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So so these people are more open to this person yeah. than a, a national TV documentary yeah. program. The car looked like it was parked on the roadway and it didn't readily look like it had crashed. Mrs. Westman said she called 911 right away and had no trouble getting through. Either 911 or the police department hung up with them after getting their information. I didn't ask which entity she talked to. Both the Westman said that they saw whoever had been in the car when it crashed get in and out of the car several times. They made sure to say that they could not recognize it as Maura Murray because it was too dark, but they could see the form of someone moving around. They said they saw the interior light go on and off several times and heard the door shut as if someone kept getting in and out of the car. They also said they saw the person open the trunk and close it as well during this time. They never saw anyone else around that car besides that one person and never saw any other vehicle stop prior to police arrival other than a school bus. What was the time again? <laughs> I would assume at night because you said the light was on. Yes, so again, this isn't simple. Supposedly there was an earlier crash around 7, but this is going on now seven between 7.30. 7.46 was Cecil Smith's arrival time. Wait, you're saying there was more than one crash now? Nobody knows. At that particular exact spot, supposedly it was... No police report followed, right? Seven. Well, the police report, there's several different inconsistent police reports. Hmm. Part of the reason this whole case is so insane is that nothing is simple and nothing can be verified. How way. crazy was the accident? Was there a lot of damage to the car? <laughs> was it like a. Can, do you have images of the car? Like, or it looked like you after the accident? It wasn't that bad from what I remember. It's not like it's not like the engine is in the passenger seat. You know? So, like, the lady or the Westmans or whatever, they saw it happen in the window. Was it that bad that they had to call the uh, 911? Or wouldn't they just run out there and be like, hey, how's it going? If it wasn't a bad accident, you know what I mean? Yeah, yes, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, it wasn't that. It wasn't that bad because they said Faith Westman. Faith Westman called the police at seven twenty-seven. Mm. Faith Westman. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, wait. What time? They never, time? they never went out. They called first and then kind of went out. Well, according to this interview, they never went out. We'll, we'll like, that again. Why wouldn't you just go out if you? Especially if you're a girl by herself that might need help. I know. And then, like, yeah, is about to die and she's bleeding. Well, if there's another police officer there who's a drunk police chief who is not supposed to be on duty and they're covering up for him and they're scared and they don't want to say the truth, then they wouldn't go out because he's also there. Right. Or they did run out and then they uh, encountered somebody else and said, get the heck out of here and go back in your house. <laughs> yep, that's another possibility. I can see that. So the Westman said that four to five minutes after the car crashed, they saw a school bus come from around the corner and stop in the road next to the car. They didn't see who was driving, but heard later that it was Butch Atwood. They said that his wife also drives a bus and is also large like he is. Like <laughs> That's three, important. Okay. He's like 300 over That's why he's driving the bus. <laughs> So it very well could have been her for all they knew. They indicated they understood his wife did not have his last name. Okay. The Westman said that the school bus was between them and Mora and that she had gotten out of the car, but he did not get on the bus. It seemed... I guess that means she did not... Well, first of all, why is there a bus driving around after 7 p.m.? Apparently... I, I forget. The, um, I think he was... 
it was a ski trip or something, so they were getting, it wasn't like going to and from school. Okay. And he was driving, I think, it was something to do with a ski trip. Nobody in it. Well, I think he got dropped the day off and he's going home. With the school bus. <laughs> yeah, he owns the bus, I think. Oh. Um, okay. So, but, I mean, you would have told him exactly where he was driving. Wait, what? He would have told him where he was driving, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, they have all that. So, he was returning home. And yeah. The weird thing is, is though he normally parked straight, but he back he parked backwards, and then he did paperwork in his bus for the first time ever for a while. But we'll get to him in a second. Let's finish with the Westerns. West of the Crescent. <laughs> it seemed that the bus driver talked to her for no more than two minutes, and the driver never got out of the bus or out of the seat, for that matter. The driver drove off and the car's driver went back to the car. When I asked the Westmans about the timeline between that point and when the police arrived, they said it took about 15 minutes for the police to arrive after the bus left. They felt sure that it could have been that long, but no shorter than 10 minutes. During this time, they saw someone smoking a cigarette from the inside of the car from the passenger side seat. By the way, Maura did not smoke from the passenger side seat. Were they sure it was a cigarette? Later on, they said no, and it could have been a cell line. A cell phone. Uh, well, just... <laughs> Tim Westman said that he had told Fred Murray about that, but he insisted his daughter did not smoke, so it must have been the light from her cell phone. Hmm. He said. The Westman said that the light inside the car and truck kept going on and off, and finally there were no lights at all. No more than two minutes after that point, the police cruiser arrived. This is another point of contention. So... Supposedly, it was a sedan that Cecil Smith, the first officer, arrived in. But there was a witness, Witness A, who drove by the scene and said that she saw an SUV parked nose-to-nose with Maura's car. Before. So this was supposedly before Cecil arrived. Hmm. Jeff Williams, the police chief, he was known to drive around drunk. Earlier that night, Cecil or uh, Cecil actually supposedly changed vehicles with him because he was in a ditch. Jeff Williams. So, the implication was that Williams possibly could have been at the scene and could have taken Mora, or if Mora had gotten to a previous accident, they already have information and they're chasing her to that scene. There's a lot of different possibilities. Indeed, I must admit, you either impressed your drunk man could kidnap a girl and tell her, even still as a police chief. It seems. In that sloppy state, that's, that's what this one that's an, interesting, that's an interesting point, but what if he, uh, he developed. Uh, a tolerance to alcohol where he was now he's only like 50% wasted and for him that's an extremely high functioning drug. They do exist. And many years of practice could have developed to that point. It could be scarier. I mean, he could be a highly efficient killing drug. Or he had help from someone else as well. So we don't know. So the point of contention on the Oxygen Show, they said that, oh, and Witness A was basically told by the police you could not have seen an SUV because it was out of commission. She said she saw a zero-zero walking SUV. They told her you didn't see that. And kind of intimidated her, and then she was also visited by uh, police before the Oxygen show aired and kind of told her, don't talk about it, you didn't see what you saw. And so, and then on the Oxygen show, they throw a curveball, and and they have Cecil Smith is like, oh yeah, I was in the SUV. Because it was winter. The supposedly decommissioned SUV that couldn't have been found. So a lot of shadiness. But in this interview, they're saying it was a cruiser. Normally, a cruiser is referred to as a sedan. Yeah. But anyway, 
Shortly thereafter, a police officer knocked on their door asking if anyone from the car accident had come to their residence. They said no. Both Tim and Faith Westman say they are positive that nobody walked by their house back towards Route 10. They said that they could see clearly out in front of their house and would have seen her go by, plus the officer came from that way and didn't see her. I was there when it turned dark, and the light is fairly bright, and the house is close to the road. They feel that she must have walked the other way. The Westman said that PMS and fire showed up and that for about an hour they, they all walked around looking throughout the area. When they were done, there were footprints all over the place and any follow-up would have been difficult. I asked the Westmans about the Atwood family. They said they didn't know them very well. They kept to themselves and had no children, they said. They weren't openly neighborly, but they thought that Mr. Marat, who lived across the road from them, was. Okay. So, Tim Westman actually said... I, at one point, in one interview, he said they'll never find her, like, definitively. Hmm. That's an interesting thing to say. That's weird. It is weird. Uh, Maybe he was just super wait, happy his questions. Wait, what was the... How did they ask him? John Smith and the uh, the other podcast guys, like, were off the scene, and they yeah. went in his house, and uh, they were just talking to him about it, and he just said they'll never find her. Did they... Did you actually hear, hear that? Yeah. yeah. It's on their episode. How was it? Was it creepy and shit, or... It was kind of dismissive, and he had this look on his face like he just he didn't want to talk about it, and there was a lot he knew, and he didn't want to be called on the fact that he's hiding information. And that's just weird about these in- interviews. Like, I don't know, people people change their views based on convenience too. Like, like if you're inconvenienced all the time and you're in a bad mood, like you say some crazy shit. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah, it's possible. It's like, cause I mean, if I if I ever witness something and people like five people interview me within a week and then I come out in a bad mood, I'd yeah. be like, yeah, I killed her. Do you know what I mean? Well, well apparently they were they were walking oh, around that. the scene and Probably. then Tim Westman suddenly turned on his lawnmower or something like to be annoying. Oh, yeah. And see, you see shit to... like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> see, like it's rough. That that's why I kind of believe that that this. Forum interview because it's probably some dude with a fucking piece what do you of think, paper. John? <laughs> <laughs> dude, I know how it feels like to be like Maxwell Powers and shit. No, what, just going back to what you were saying with the whole interview thing. I mean, we're talking, uh, we're talking like what, fourteen years after. Like people probably will change their story fourteen years later. If somebody would have been Some people don't. Interview. Witness A, Witness A did it. She had the exact time. She left her job, drove by, saw the sedan, uh, saw the SUV parked yeah. nose to nose. Didn't change a single thing about it. Mm. I guess the ones that are more directly connected to me. Maybe the ones that are actually on its own. So, okay. Virginia and John Marat actually saw Tim and Faith Westman go out to the scene. So they said they did go out to the car when they said they didn't. Westmans. Yeah, the Marats are the other neighbors. Okay, they said that they went out. The Westmans walked out of their house. But the Westmans said they never met. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) So the Marats were more friendly. So wait, they're across the street. Is that the Marats? Yeah, they're a little tiny bit farther. So the the other inconsistency is the John Marat actually said he saw the brake lights in the car actually after the accident. The car actually backed up and was moved. Which doesn't match up any other testimonies. Also, another strange thing about the Westmans, Faith Westman actually complained to the police about trespassers because uh, Fred Murray looking for his daughter. You know, they were all around that area, and she actually complained to the police, and they like issued like, you know, warnings that trespassers would be uh, prosecuted. Yeah. 
which is strange. No, the other neighbors didn't. It was just them. Like, obviously, the guy's looking for his missing daughter, and they're, you know, Jeff, and Williams, Jeff Williams responded due to the complaints. Also, the Westmans didn't allow people to, like, park by their property during, like, memorials and stuff, and that's a pretty dangerous turn. So they were, they didn't, like, they blocked off their area so nobody could park there. So you just tear it down and park there anyway. Kind of inconsiderate, you know? <laughs> but, and then the Boutiers, the other neighbors who, they're behind the Westmans. And they did not know anything happened that night, and when asked about their neighbors, they said everybody just kind of keeps to themselves, and we got no problems with any of them. So all these people still live there? Um, they probably <laughs> must. Butch Atwood, Butch Atwood moved away after a while he moved to Florida. Oh, yeah. P.I. Okay. actually went to Florida to his house there. To, <laughs> I forget. I don't either know or uh, he, it was very brief and he dismissed him. Hmm. No, what about the West probably got tired of The Westmans still live there, yeah. And uh, I'm not 100% sure about that. Yeah, they must be sick and tired of all these like people coming up because it's like an Yeah. Song. yeah. Well, Butch Atwood died now, but so he's not alive. So we're going to go up to the Elwood's Orton. Uh, at Barbara? Uh, the West is here. So we're going up there? You want to so go they can, to the West? Yeah, so they can move out too. Take their house. If this gets a thousand likes, we'll go and uh, interview them. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Alright, so just quick. So one of the original crazy theories was that this was a communal slang. We talked about this in the last episode, right? Yeah. So if the Westmans were responsible in some way. Now, I, I don't think it's highly likely that the Westmans just took more and killed her. Why so not? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, Sid Irwin wants to know why the Westmans didn't do it. Um, I agree to that, too, just because the... I don't know. It just, it just doesn't It's tough, sense. because... There was, like, Marat saw the street, but right. Atwood would have view of the street. Mm-hmm. There's inconsistencies with the other. If there was a prior accident and the cop was already chasing Marat, like, how would it all play out? Unless it was in cahoots with the cop, then yes, then possibly. But then where would they put her? So if there was kind of cahoots with the cops, they shouldn't switch their story that much. Then. Oh, yeah. yeah. Some people say, yeah, the police just intimidated them and told them not to talk about it, really, and then just stick to these points and don't ever question these points. doesn't matter what you said before. This is what you need to say now or don't say anything at all. Yeah. I mean, it'd be rather odd to uh, be in cahoots with them and then basically point all the blame towards them. Uh, I don't know. Unless they're trying to do some proactive thinking, let's just make things all kinds of crazy weird. So what's up? Were the Westmans responsible directly in any way, or they just not at all? Because like, what's the what are the chances of you crashing your car and like this serial killer is like down the street? Oh, it just turns out freshman. Well, see, uh, if that's uh, true that they're responsible, maybe they moved there on purpose because they know the corner is kind of crazy. Then when somebody just property, they did say that there was a lot of spin outs at that corner. Oh my <laughs> god! <laughs> they purposely lived there and wow. still lived there. Wow, they <laughs> That was pretty tough to, to find because like there was no Google Maps back then or you know. I mean, you, you know, well, yeah, MapQuest yeah. was the big one. Map yeah. Quest was the big one. yeah, because you'd have to look at MapQuest and look at the sharp corners. And, and but I'm going to reiterate, reiterate one more time. It appears that that sharp corner was not the cause of her accident because uh, it was farther down and the road was dry. Yeah, yeah. 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 so. 
but there are a lot of accidents that happen. Yeah, because usually it's not dry. So it's okay. not the accident is usually at far the down, down, not, down, not down, far down, that down. much yeah, far right, right, right. That's so weird. Yeah, it's really weird. So, all right, let's move on to Butch Atwood. We've covered him extensively, but quick recap. So he's the school bus driver, the last official person to see Mora alive, if it was Mora. And his testimony is very questionable. So he parked differently than ever that night and strangely did stayed on his bus to do paperwork. Now, some people think that Mora, yeah. he might have let Mora hide out on his bus until the police uh, kind of... Yeah, yeah, their thing. But yeah, again, like, the Westmans probably would have saw that if they didn't take their eyes off. Right, right, right. But then they changed their story and said they did, but they weren't watching the whole time. They were working on the computer or in the kitchen, or whatever. So the window, the window where something happened is still narrow, even if everybody's lying or not lying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still a super narrow window, which is one of the reasons the case is so mysterious. But um, so he did take two or more lie detector tests. He passed one, failed another, supposedly. I think he failed the first one, then he passed. But he had a heart condition that supposedly accounted for that, because he was so big. But his mother worked for the police department, which we just found out. We discussed that. So, yes. As what? So if there was a police department, some administrative position. But there weren't that many people working there. So what are... I don't know some office I don't know. Uh, she knows right. she knows the people in the apartment. Got it. That's the significance. Okay. So if there was some so, conspiracy cover up, I like that. you know, if she's if if it's if she's Butch Atwood's mother and if there was some weirdness, Butch yeah. Atwood doesn't need to talk, but the whole weirdness is all covered up together. Got it. Yes. Uh, I don't remember now. <laughs> and so Greg Floyd is is his buddy. And so the DA for some reason was always covering for Bruce McKenna and all his shady actions and unlawful police activity. So Chris King exposed a lot of the shadiness in that area, so he's a journalist, and he actually uncovered that Floyd shot Kenny in cold blood and not in defense because they apparently lost the evidence on Kenny's gun. So Chris King said that uh, Greg Floyd actually put the magazine, after he shot Michael Kenny, he put a magazine in his gun to make it look like Kenny was armed and going to shoot him to excuse the, the death. And then he also shot, uh, he also told Kenny's passenger to pick up the gun because he wanted to shoot and kill him too, but the passenger was like, no. Don't shoot and kill him, please. Wise choice. But apparently, if Greg Floyd was always on the police scanner, he knew where Bruce McKay was, and if Bruce McKay told him stuff, they were kind of tag teaming people possibly. So if McKay is involved in the Moore Murray disappearance, which is a possibility, then Greg Floyd might be involved as well. Possibility. So the other thing people don't really talk about is both McKay and Floyd were both kind of notorious in the area as crazy psychopaths. Oh. And they were also shooting buddies, so they went shooting together. And Floyd was actually not allowed to own firearms because that'd be in violation of his parole, but apparently McKay didn't care and nobody else either, and he fires like automatic weapons off in his backyard. Oh. So we'll go over uh, Bruce McKay and the other police POIs in the next episode, but we'll just focus on the civilians for now. So, again, the psychics mentioned an eagle. Floyd actually has a tattoo of an eagle on his arm. So if you believe in the psychics and the eagle being involved... I would also put uh, the one guy the National Guard in there, too. Yes. And apparently, well, apparently Floyd was also in the military. But he was he was only stationed at a, a home base, even though he said he went to Vietnam and claimed that Lyco Kenny was his forty third kill. 
Yes, Greg Floyd is an interesting character. So this is from Boston Magazine, 2007. In the politician's rush to absolve Floyd, they glossed over a few things. Minutes after the police arrived at the scene, Floyd claimed Kenny was the 43rd person who killed. Later that night, he told police he worked for the government in places and things you can't talk about. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Floyd had also been found guilty of selling marijuana and PCP in Georgia. Felony convictions that made it illegal for him to own the two firearms he kept stashed at his house way up in the deep woods of Easton where a chain hangs across his driveway and at least one snarling Rottweiler patrols the ground. According to police reports in 1997, Floyd threatened to sick his dog on a utility meter reader who'd come onto his property. When straight troopers showed up to arrest him, he tried to force them off his land by sending his son for a gun, shouting, I know you wear vests, so I would have to put it right between the eyes. Oh, shit. <laughs> he was found guilty of assault, resisting arrest, receiving three years probation, and a suspended prison sentence. Bill Kenny is among those who theorize that Floyd was an informal backup from the K, operating on a kind of buddy system. The two lived not far apart and seemed to share a similar outlook on the world. Floyd refuses to speak to the press, but some in Franconia also speculate that he kept a police scanner, which would have let him track McKay's movements. In any event, his role in the bloody events on Route 116, he outdid the slain cop come prosecutor. For Lyco Kenny, Greg W. Floyd served as judge, jury, and executioner. So the corruption does seem extensive, although if Floyd was some kind of valuable police informant or had some kind of a deal, it would explain some things. What do you think, Maxwell? Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> was he the least informant working with McKay? Johnny? What do you think of these goings on in the area? Well, I was intrigued by it. I mean, just thinking about it, this, uh, this Floyd is, apparently seems to be not shy about like, his actions. He's quick to, you know, admit, if I did it, I did it. I killed that guy and I'd do it again. Um, if he had any involvement more, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think if he asked, he probably would be, yeah, I killed her. I don't know, because if, if, if it was known, and so, th this guy killed a cop, so he killed the guy that killed the cop, so he probably thought that would kind of let him off the hook. Yeah. And if he's a police informant, if he just starts admitting to random murders of innocent women, unarmed, that's a little different. <laughs> yeah, so, but, I don't know, he said That's what he said, yeah. But it was actually revealed that he never was in Vietnam. He never actually got deployed. So, but then, so yeah, so he claims he works for like secret government agencies. So yeah, so I guess that. But all the the weird thing is, is if he keeps getting off the hook with everything, how is that happening? Unless it's simply Bruce McKay's his buddy or drug connection, and he just told the state attorney or whatever the the attorney general. To be like, oh, you don't prosecute me or my buddy Greg Floyd, so they can get off the hook. But I don't know. What do you think? Could be, yeah, it could be attention. Are we moving on from Floyd? No thoughts, Johnny. No thoughts on Floyd. Next one, since we discussed him before. Nothing. I got nothing. I'm gonna go with this up that anytime you guys got nothing, I got to do it. <laughs> Alright, let's move on to Tim Carpenter. Maxwell knows who Tim Carpenter is. Oh, Tim Carpenter, that Carpenter guy. 
So, no, he's not a carpenter. So, Tim Carpenter <laughs> is Kathleen Murray's boyfriend at the time of Moore's disappearance. Kathleen is Moore's other sister, not the one that went the to one, right? So, she's the alcoholic. She's not the one that interviewed on the... Older. Yes, that was the one that was interviewed at the motel. So, supposedly, so she also talked to Mora the night that Mora had a breakdown at her job. Hmm. She also talked to Billy, her boyfriend, at that that night also, so it's unknown where the breakdown happened. But one theory is if she went up there to help Kathleen, like to get her into rehab, whatever, if her crazed boyfriend, Tim Carpenter, followed them, and he had a red truck with Massachusetts plates, which is what that witness saw. So if he followed her, he could have possibly done something. Kathleen could have been involved somehow. We don't know. But they're with their own sister, though? Who knows? So Tim Carpenter made statements about Fred Murray. So he made comments about Fred Murray, that he was only serious about looking for his daughter when the cameras were around. So he was kind of saying... Wait, this is, this is the... Tim Carpenter. He's saying this about Fred Murray. Get out of here. Yes. Wait, 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 what, what did, what did Kathleen think about him or anything like that? I don't know. Alright, keep going. That's fine. That'd be an interest that should have been asked of Kathleen. <laughs> so he has since had a stroke, so apparently he would not be able to shed light on any of this information. Although there was no official alibi given that's publicly available when Mora on that night. So we're going to get into the Jeremy Rathbun, Tim Carpenter, Fred Murray triangle now. So Maxwell knows all about this. We've been uh, on Rathbun's account before. Fred <laughs> said, so Jeremy Rathbun is a guy who apparently witnessed somebody with a red truck. This red truck keeps coming in. There's a lot of people with red trucks out there. Yeah. Yes. Apparently. construction company for red trucks. Is there any proof of these? Like, People have red trucks. So Rathbun said that he saw somebody, you know, spray wash and clean a truck, and then they were moving barrels with red liquid in them, and then Maura Murray's clothes were found with the initials MM on the sweatshirt, which Maura's family said is what she does with her clothes. Where? In that area where Rathbun claims that he saw this red truck. That's real? They really found her clothes? Yes. I never heard about that. I don't remember that. Did, did you did you know that? So they got well, hold on, let me well let me let me just do it in order, so let me finish. So Fred says that Rathbun identified Tim Carpenter with a sketch before ever meeting him. After seeing him outside of his truck near Warren, New Hampshire, with the cap off trying to air the flatbed out while wearing a respirator mask. Tim Carpenter won't look at Rathbun after that. Tim Carpenter's attempts to cast doubt on Fred. So James Renner actually interviewed Tim Carpenter, and he said, it's also terribly irresponsible to name Tim as a murderer without talking to him and giving him the chance to tell his side. I spoke to Tim for my book. I met him, stood next to the man. He told me a lot about his relationship with Kathleen and also about what she had to say about her father, which was nothing good, and explains their estrangement. This is just another distracting conspiracy theory. However, police did collect a DNA sample from Kathleen last year before the oxygen show. If she and or Tim were involved in whatever way, it should be investigated just like that. So she, so Kathleen had nothing to say about uh, Mr. Fred? About Fred Murray? Yeah, Fred Murray. Oh, uh, that's what James Renner said. 
You know, because this is a common theme. I'm just like, yeah, it's that's James. Well, that's James Renner. But and, and also, also, I just, I just keep remembering like how the father was on the camera, and he was like this nice guy. I don't know. I'm just, yeah. I just like the contradiction. That's all. So Jeremy Rathbun. So Warren, Vermont, is about 15 miles south of where Moore went missing. So it's not that far. So this is the site. And it was originally a Facebook claim, but there's corroboration from Fred Murray, and there was also a police search done with dogs because of this claim. So, okay. they had found clothes that were might have been Morris, a navy blue sweatshirt with MM in marker on the tag. So this was near a trail in Warren, New Hampshire, 15 miles southeast of the accident site. And a red truck was nearby. The driver of the truck was, was acting oddly, so they didn't make eye contact, and they faked reaching for a gun when these people approached. So these clothes were also found where there was a bear barrel with reddish-brown liquid in it. Is that supposed to be paint, or like are they trying to paint that blood? Oh, human body, who knows? So the police were informed, and so they apparently got the plate number for the truck as well. It was a Massachusetts plate. So, again, we don't know what happened to this, whether they traced the plate, whatever. So, in October 2006, police searched the area with canine units. And that there were several hits. What? But they didn't find it. They said they didn't find anything. So, now we have another guy. A guy named Brandon Wynn, who also goes by James Wynn, and also Benjamin James Wynn. We have a Ben. We finally have a Ben, Maxwell. Big Ben. It's all about the psychics. Yes, the psychics that mentioned Ben. So, Benjamin James Wynn apparently knows Jeremy Rathbun, or he just copied what he said. But uh, Ben Wynn also was in the military. So, again, the psychic said it was a military person, whatever. And so, there's a sketch. What? There's a sketch, too. That sketch looked like Cecil, though. It didn't really look like anybody else. So, Wynn has said similar things, that it was in the Warren Piermont area. Now, the problem is the timing of this account has changed a few different times. So, one time it was in spring, other time it was June, and... Rathbun and his wife have actually been convicted of falsifying material testimony under oath, aka perjury, in a different case. So again, that might not be they're lying about this, but there's a history of it. Yes. So this was supposedly reported to a Warren police officer, and this is what he said about it. And just so everyone knows, yes, I am afraid of the New Hampshire police as they are corrupt and dirty as they want to be. If they want you to be quiet, they will make you. And he said that the canine searches were in the wrong area, not where he reported his site. So he claimed that he was hiking around Lake Tar, that reservoir, months, possibly years after Mortimer's disappearance. And on the logging road, that's where he observed a man with that, with the red truck, the red liquid, the bear barrel. And so he basically looked like a bear hunter. And other accounts are that this hike occurred April 2004. So this is only two months after Moore went missing. And Benjamin Wynn also kind of points the finger at Tim Carpenter, just like Rathbun did. And so when he was asked about this, Wynn said that he was in Afghanistan at the time. 
and he claims he's been in contact with the family, with the Murray family as well. The other thing about Wynn, it's your time for more coincidences, he made certain comments regarding the regarding Alden Olsen. Alden Olsen is the creepy old guy who made the videos taunting the family. Can you talk about him? I believe we did briefly. Yes. He, mentioned, he, mentioned, he mentioned him. Not only that, he actually revealed Alden Olsen's address online. Oh. Well, so well, now well, Alden can receive death threats by mail as well as email. Right. Speaking of Alden Olsen. <laughs> why, why do you do that? Why do you Because he wants all. I don't know. It's messed up. Because he thinks Alden's a suspect. I don't know. He wants people to go kill Alden Olsen. I don't know. He's messed up. He, he, why are you asking me what these people are doing? Excuse. What? So what do we think of the Rathbun Win accounts? Are they credible? Hey, that's intriguing. Yeah. What's the big word? Um, is this case a big enough maze for you? No, I think we're getting a little bit larger. Oh, okay, because it's about to. <laughs> Johnny, any thoughts? <laughs> nothing? <laughs> Got nothing. Okay, so Alden Olsen, the enigma that is Alden Olsen, has been discussed in great length on this podcast. He is and was officially a person of interest. He has threatened his own family members in the past. I think once with a shotgun. Or so oh, he pulled geez. a shotgun on someone else. And also oh, James Renner. The former Walmart greeter is most famous in the Murray case for posting weird videos appearing to taunt the family on the anniversary of Morris' appearance. He has been dubbed 112 Dirtbag, referencing Fred Murray's comment that a local dirtbag was responsible for Morris' appearance. Strange as he is, he did some instrumental work in shedding light on Amherst and UMass strangeness. There's definitely something off. He did great work in examining the police in the Vassie run. And he brought up connections that have not been brought up before, particularly in mechanic and PI connections, and that certain people had both examined the Corolla at the Hadley crash site and the Saturn at the Weathered Barn, as well as a web of Iranian connections to Vassie and the general Amherst and UMass community. He has also been a target of vandalism and police harassment himself. He actually got served a no trespass order for asking questions at UMass about parking zones. Oh. I don't know, you go to university, you ask about parking, you suddenly get a no trespass order? That's a, that's a good one for sure. <laughs> so the strangest connection we have with Alden, or perhaps just one of many strange connections, is the fixation of the first PI hired on the Moore Murray case. So apparently Robert C. Stevens, owner of Psychologically Supported Investigation and Intervention, PSII Inc., which is located in Hadley, Massachusetts. Hmm. Stevens is the first PI to become involved in Maura Murray's case. And he initiates contact with Olson in February 2011 and maintains the harassment for a year. So Olson's name was given to Maura Murray's family and eventually John Healy. Healy and other members who were investigated Moore Murray and, and Olsen had been arrest, arrested on complaints which were dismissed. So the other thing we didn't really talk about with Alden Olsen is his connection to Mr. 1974. But anyway, so Mr. 1974, James Renner actually reported this. Uh, Alden Olsen refers to himself as Mr. 1974. So get this. John William McGrath, who was one of New Hampshire's most wanted criminals. In 1962, 17-year-old John William McGrath murdered his entire family in Newport, New Hampshire. He took the rifle his uncle had reclaimed from a dead Japanese soldier in World War II and shot his two younger brothers, whom he was babysitting, 
home. Then he sat and waited for his parents to return home. When they did, he shot them too. From the Concord Monitor, but the same McGrath had been seeing a doctor at the state hospital in Concord for two years as an outpatient for reasons not explained in the news out accounts. In writings found after the murders, police discovered repeated references to death and executioner and darkness. Perhaps death is the answer to the question of existence. Read one of McGrath's passages that was collected. After the murders, he, he drove 45 minutes to Concord and turned himself in at the mental hospital. He was found insane and committed to a psych hospital. At the hospital, he proved to be an academic. He wrote book reviews, he painted murals of New Hampshire covered bridges on the walls of the hospital, and he was given permission to take computer classes at New Hampshire Technical Institute. When he started dealing drugs, he was sent to prison. In 1972, he returned to the mental hospital. In 1974, he walked away from the hospital grounds and was never seen again. He will be seven, 67 years old now. Now, 2018, uh, this blog was written a couple of years ago, I don't know, one, two years ago, whatever, so he'd be in his late 60s. Okay. So, he calls himself, Alden Olson calls himself Mr. 1974, then he says, I'm not Mr. 1974, I'm a private detective. Pictures of the body, yeah. No, it's not him. He's just because he's, 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 but he's gone. He's disappeared. He would be, yeah, he'd be a lot old. So they think he killed uh, other people as well. Now here's what's weird. He posted, Alden Olson posted the video on July 26th, which is the anniversary of the discovery of the Lady of the Dunes. The Ladies of the Dunes is an unidentified female that was found murdered. And she was found on July 26, 1974. So another coincidence. Some people think John William McGrath is the Connecticut Valley killer. He's never been identified because he was in the general area where these murders occurred. Since okay. several girls from the next town over from Newport in Claremont were found murdered. One from Newport was murdered and her body was found in Derby, Vermont. And another female skull was also found there. So, in any case, some believed Alden Olson was John William McGrath, but this is not the case. However, Alden clearly knows who he is. Alden knows a lot of things. Whether he's officially insane or not, his brain does seem to be able to find connections and patterns in a unique way. Who knows, maybe he will offer something to the case. It's also possible he might know someone who knows something and is just playing a weird game. Or he's just a highly intelligent troll who got a little too involved with kids. He's also presented some of the most out-there theories about Maura Murray being connected to other cases and being a victim of egg and or organ harvesting for the black market, as well as genetic government experiments linked with nutritional supplements. Really? Yes. Yeah. So there's a whole pot. What's even more insane is that he actually backs up a lot of these theories with connections and personnel of various companies who lived or had deals with other people involved. The level of strangeness is off the charts. How surprising though with the Kentucky Mole people. What? Most people I'm just saying, you know, her body would have been out there when it came out. That's your body over the whole world. Alright, of course, no podcast would be complete without mentioning Billy Roush. <laughs> We've also covered him extensively. His highly suspect phone activity the day before and the day of her disappearance. Right. Highly suspicious movement in phone activity in the week after her disappearance. Whereabouts not really corroborated during the search. And he did not focus on the immediate area of Haverhill. He was all over New Hampshire, Vermont, and even Maine. 
possibly even talked to Mora on the phone after the disappearance, then went silent for days with no phone activity at all. Highly suspicious. Recent revelations about women who claimed Roush harassed and or abused them were put forth by James Renner. One even claimed Roush said, I'll kill you like I killed Mora. Oh, wow. What do you think about that, John? I mean, said he killed her? So, <laughs> so you think he did? So he did. Case closed. Okay. Case closed. Usually when a woman gets killed, it's usually the husband or boyfriend. This fact alone warrants that Billy is a POI until definitively ruled out, which has not happened. He also said he, he feels like uh, Scott Peterson when he first arrived in, uh, in New Hampshire. Because he was at Fort Sill the day of his appearance. So, definitely a strange character. We went over him a whole bunch, so he's currently going to be in court for all this stuff. He got fired because of it. I think he also worked on the Obama campaign for at one point. <laughs> and so some people think his sister's suicide is connected to uh, Maura Murray. We should do something. Or maybe whatever. There's a lot of strangeness with Billy Roush. Uh, and lastly... Some people believe serial killers were involved. We went over Howard Godfrey and Israel Keys. Godfrey is a potentially better suspect with links all over New Hampshire and even still Vermont where he worked and Moore and her father had visited multiple times. Godfrey had been investigated in both the Moore Murray and Brianna Maitland cases, but nothing definitive ever came of it. Godfrey did possess articles about Moore Murray when he was arrested. Hmm. Police had mentioned they had a better suspect for the Mark Murray case and may not have investigated further. Key's connections aren't well-defined, just a random killer, until he was caught for a non-random abduction. So, what do we think here? All these persons of interest, possible suspects, a lot of shady stuff going on, right? Yeah, crazy. Oh, it's intense. Far too many people who like to do dumb things, potentially. So what do you think overall? Now, Godfrey actually was in the was not in prison, like I think from two thousand one to two thousand five, when she went missing. And he had like uh, like things he kept from people that he killed. And uh, but not more. More was in a separate area, so it's just really shady. So is it possible he knew he killed her if it was another serial killer? We did an episode on on this. If yeah, you remember Maxwell? Yeah, yeah. In our serial killers episode, where we went over him. He's a pretty, I mean, there's things that don't add up about all of these suspects. Like, they're all shady in their own way, but things don't add up when compared to other things, which is the problem with this case. With the um, eyewitness, the eyewitness accounts and everything and such. Shit, I mean, the biggest thing to me is still, uh, if you stop your serial killers, quote-unquote, uh, it's just motive to be around like that, to just... Well, Israel Keys, his M.O. is randoms. He has no connection to them. That's why he went so long without being caught. Because most serial killers, they either saw someone or followed yeah. somebody. He's just complete. He's all about random. That was his thing. Sure. It's kind of uncorroborated exactly where he was. Supposedly, he was across the country. And they have some whatever toll, toll road toll footage, but maybe not. Because that's all... There were weird statements made. Nothing's 100% trustworthy. So I guess he could have been... In New Hampshire, but that's what I'm saying. Like, it was even if it was a random thing, because I mean, like, just for a person to, in general, randomly decide, okay, I'm going to abduct or kill or do something to this girl who just happens to be on the side of the road. Yeah, well, if her car's broken down, it's kind of like an easy kill, right? 
It is, but still. I mean, or the other theory is that he saw her at a gas station. I mean, that, she stopped and he kind of followed her. I would just tell him, like, if like, he's any serial killer. Yeah, like, I mean, any serial killer probably would tell him. I mean, so someone doesn't, let's say, have a history of a serial just like... Oh, an opportunistic killer decided he was just going to kill that first time ever? Yeah, like, I mean, and most times with those opportunistic killers, I mean... Person. Usually, I'd rather be close to home or close to something like that, or just some sort of connection. So, what do you think, Johnny? Serial killer or no? Local police. Where, where are you at? Uh, well, that's, I mean, it's uh, crazy. So, too much to digest. Too many persons of interest, and we didn't even get in to the law enforcement and other government official persons of interest, or the Amherst and UMass persons of interest in the case we'll, we'll get into it in the next episode but we hope you enjoyed another edition of the mind shot podcast <laughs> oh man i gotta remember these and if you enjoy the podcast you can donate on our paypal just check the link in the description this is bruce mcguire signing off maxwell Paris here john mills consider have a good night